In the Anglican Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, some of you know it from childhood, first published in 1549, the prayer of confession goes like this. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Now, I've always thought that pretty well covers all the bases, doesn't it? <laughs> thought, word, deed, both what you do and what you don't do, what we have left undone. It's known in Christian theology as the sin of omission, those of you who didn't get catechized. The sin of omission is something you deliberately decide not to do that you should have done. Now here's what fascinates me about the concept of the sin of omission. There's an implicit assumption built in that each of us actually has the time to do moral reasoning before we do action in the world. That we have the time to think about something and deliberately decide not to do it or to do it. And which leads to my question to you, how many times in our busy lives do we actually have time to think through anything that we do? Now, I'm gonna hang that thought up uh, right over here and keep it hanging until I get back to it with something that's nowadays called the default mode network of the brain. But first, consider the temple at Delphi which was an institution that existed for 1,100 years. The ancient Greeks thought that the temple of the Greek god Apollo at Delphi sat on the omphalos, the center, the belly button of the world. Not only was the temple situated on the belly button of the planet, but also on the slope of Mount Parnassus, where the muses were thought to dwell. Now, the priestess at the temple has come to be known as the Oracle of Delphi. The priestess would be filled with enthusiasmos, where we get the word, English word enthusiasm. She would be filled with theos, with the gods, and she would issue cryptic prophecies to all of her clients. Some argue that the temple was built over fault lines that emitted hallucinogenic gases. Others argue that the priestess ritualistically took hallucinogenity lens. Whatever the cause, the temple was apparently a very mind-blowing experience for over a thousand years. Now, inscribed over the entrance of that temple were the words, Nothi Swaton, Nothi Swaton. Nothi, we get uh, Gnostic, right, and agnostic, it means no. So know thyself is what was inscribed above the doorway. Now, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus took his shot at the message of Delphi when he famously said, character is fate. Character is fate. Heraclitus died in 475 BCE, and he was dismissing such influences as the will of the gods and the effect of the stars, you know, astrology and such. Knowing yourself means making your own fate by being who you are and doing what you do. But what's that? What Heraclitus ignored is that fate is not only character, but also, as Martin Luther King pointed out, the color of your skin, and your gender, your sexuality, your social class, your religion. Part of knowing 
yourself is also knowing the labels that have been thrust upon you by society. Any markers, any labels that we human beings can create, we will in what the British anthropologist Ernest Crowley called the narcissism of minor differences. The narcissism of minor differences. I often think of that as we use wrangle over God and that sort of thing. Freud built on this idea as he tried to explain why people so similar hate each other so much. Freud attributed this human tendency to the narcissism of minor differences and what he added is something called the taboo of personal isolation. The taboo of personal isolation. Now, taboo, it's one of those things that, you know, it must be wrong, and we can't think or even talk about it, right? Freud intuited that knowing thyself, or shall we say knowing the self created out of the matrix of personal and social labels, somehow creates a self so wrapped up in ego that the smallest differences from another person will create an excuse for mayhem and murder. Uh, thyself is a bit of a jerk, it appears. <laughs> the taboo of personal isolation ratchets up an individual's egotism, according to Freud. For example, notice that the individuals who take AR-15s and murder people are nearly always isolated individuals getting their community online. Isolation, individuality, egotism, blowing up little differences out of all proportion. But as Freud knew, that's all the product of a story that is both forced upon us and that we tell ourselves, especially when we stay isolated and individualistic and egotistic. But I, I think perhaps Freud got it backwards. It's not the id, that unconscious driving desires bubbling somewhere, that commits the murders and does the hate. I think it's the superego, the egotism, the me, me, me. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think metaphors do matter. If the cosmos and humanity has been created by an awe-inspiring, all-powerful God, then we human beings are not going to be able to break the planet doesn't make sense that we could do that. That's one way of seeing things. It's kind of comforting, really. We see ourselves as the crown of creation. But I think the poet Alison Hawthorne Deming is closer to the truth. We did not spring from an idea out in space. Rather, we emerged organically from the sequenced larval mess of creation, she says, that binds us with the others, all playing the endgame of a beautiful planet. The others are people, sure, but also trees and amoebas and bacterias and those things Joan would know about that I actually don't. We call it, in the UU principles, the web of all uh, existence of which we are a part. Know thyself. And thyself is, if the best of current human thinking is correct, the sequenced larval mess of creation. And that's a whole other way of seeing yourself and the world. The Buddhists knew this truth a whole long time ago. The Buddha's great insight was that this heavy burden we carry around called the self is a total illusion. 
But it's difficult to turn your mind from being the crown of creation to being the sequenced larval mess of creation that binds us with the others. But if you stop and think about it, that too can be liberating. I mentioned Michael Pollan's new book a few Sundays ago titled, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transidence. Okay, here's the spoiler alert, all right? Pollan's conclusion to that book is that we get it wrong when we contrast spirituality with materiality. When we contrast spirituality over here, the material over here. The opposite of spirituality, Pollan claims, is egotism, being totally caught up in your own stuff. And I think he's right about that. Because the opposite of a naturalistic, materialistic worldview is also egotism. That's why a science-based religious naturalism works out to the same conclusions as many, if not most, religions. After you realize that we are part of the sequenced larval mess of creation, it gets more difficult to think you're the only thing that matters. To my mind, the health of a, an outlook, a worldview, is its ability to get us thinking and acting compassionately and maybe even self-critically sometimes. Even if a god did create the earth in seven days and give humanity uh, dominion over it, that's still a bad way to run a planet. It's gonna get things killed, right? Assuming another metaphor, a metaphor of the earth being an organic whole of which we are only a bit part, that's a healthier vision of how the planet might operate and sustain itself. So know thyself. It was a challenge when it was carved over the entrance to the Temple of Apollo. But the dominant answers in the Western world have driven us into the wrong direction, I think. Knowing that yourself is still the challenge now and today, but we have better tools to work with than Heraclitus did a couple of thousand years ago. Who and what the heck am I? Who are you even to ask a question like that? So far as we know, cats don't ask that question. Dogs and cattle don't ask that question. Also, what does it even mean to know? And what's a self? It has been the central question for a long time, but I think we've often answered it badly. However, neuroscientists are slowly closing in on a system that appears to create the sense of self. As I understand it, and I'm an amateur, okay, one of the hottest topics just now in brain research is what has come to be called the default mode network, DMN. I'll take that back off the hook now, right? Default mode network, which appears to be the source of what each of us experiences as a self. The DMN is what we know when we know thyself. And yes, the ancient Buddhists got it closer than did the Western thinkers. Fundamentally, there isn't a self. So back to the concept I put on the hook a few minutes ago. The self is an illusion created by the default mode network as it produces your memories and your anticipation of the future 
And the story you tell yourself about yourself, you know, your autobiography, the default mode network is what you use when thinking about your emotions, thinking about how others feel, empathy, and that theory of mind, thinking about what other people are thinking. The default mode network is what creates moral and ethical reasoning, and it's what we use to understand the stories, like Jim told. It produces memories of past events, and it imagines the future. Depression is about the past. Anxiety is about the future. As the Buddhists also understood, all of those things happen best when the mind is at rest. You think more clearly about that self when you are at rest or daydreaming. The mind is wandering away. It appears that scientists have found how to isolate a single memory which exists in specific neurons, you know, those little electric things in the cells in the brain. For example, a visual memory begins in the part of the brain that actually processes visual stimuli, apparently. That's how it got in there, and that's where it still is. Then, well, it's complicated. You can have a chair at Harvard, too, if you figure this out. But it appears that there are at least somewhere between 10 and 30 different pathways that every memory goes down. And that's what they're chasing at the present moment, is how does that happen from that little bitty start? But it's pretty clear nowadays that the self that we know is produced when a mind is at rest. How much rest do you get? As the emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius put it a long time ago, quote, a lifetime is a dot. It's a flux, and our perceptions are dim, and our bodies rotting. Our spirits are in a whirl. We don't know what will happen next, end quote. That about sums it up, doesn't it? Yes, it's difficult to find that restful mind, that mind-wandering, daydreaming spot where we can actually collect ourselves. The theme for the month of November, as I mentioned earlier, is memory, the practice of honest remembering. Don't, don't be dishonest about it, right? And honoring the shoulders on which we stand. Now, if I got elected Pope of the world tomorrow, and this, I'm always running, so, you know. <laughs> if I got elected Pope of the world tomorrow, the religion that I would impose on the world is actually the oldest human religion apparently, and that is veneration of the dead. When the first human being stopped and thought about what had just happened to a loved one who fell over dead, that was the birth of religion and philosophy, I think. And by the way, that person was thinking of someone besides themselves when they started dealing with the departed loved one. They were getting outside their own heads. Now, ancestor worship is a pejorative term. Those who venerate the dead do not worship ancestors in any way that you know, the Christian religion would impose on that. Rather, they remember those who have gone. Look at the ofrendas of Dia de los Muertos. Siempre te recordamos, right? We will always remember you. Mm -hmm. 
In a very real sense, the remembered dead have a continuing existence. Our DNA passed through them. Our personal histories intertwine with theirs. Their deeds, for both good and ill, live in us still. And remembering that creates a sense, I think, of awe. Wow, how far does this go back? And connection. Wow, how far does this go back? Perhaps even humbleness. You understand that it's not all about you. But at the same time, you can see part of how you are constructing yourself. You're telling yourself stories about them. Remembering, and it comes from the Latin word memor, to be mindful. When we are mindful of those who have gone before, history can become instructive. And the present moment somehow becomes a little bit more malleable and changeable and a little more full of possibility. Just look at everything we've been through, and here we are. We made it. Respect for the past, respect for the location of the bones of your ancestors, respect in remembering the hard work and sacrifice and shortcomings, too, of those who have gone before, learning from their shortcomings and their prejudices and their hatreds, keeping alive the tradition of overcoming. I run it through my ought test. I have my ought test for how religions work, right? Veneration for the dead does all my oughts. It's logical. There's nothing to believe. It's awe-inspiring. It brings gratitude. It makes you stop and think for a moment. It helps you remember what you have done and left undone. It's good for you. So veneration of the dead, I think, is the best religion ever. And as soon as I'm elected Pope of the world, you will obey. <laughs> but now it's just a friendly suggestion. So the word secular, the original use of the term secular meant generation, age. In Christian usage, the term came to represent this world of time and death as opposed to that other world of eternity. And that distinction is a good one to remember. When many of us call ourselves secular, one thing we're saying is that we believe that our existence occurs only within time. And many of us go on to believe that existence can only take place within time, that we are all playing that end game of a beautiful planet. I suspect that eternity doesn't exist and can't exist. That's just my opinion. But eternity is just a word for how time stops existing, right? But time is merely a word for where we are in terms of the Big Bang or, or whatever it was that started all this. When time doesn't exist, I suspect that nothing exists. Time, I don't believe, is somehow magic. It's merely that measure of what happened since the Big Bang. It's that measure of the sequence larval mess of creation. What have we done and what we, have we left undone within that time? What we have left, left undone as a species, think for a moment, all those ancestors back. Well, I think it's the work 
of getting over our feelings of isolation and separateness and our narcissism of minor differences. That's what we human beings don't do well at getting past. Too often we still act, as the poet Alison Hawthorne Deming phrases it, as if we'd sprung from an idea out in space rather than emerging from the sequenced larval mess of creation that binds us with all of the others, all playing the in-game of a beautiful planet. <laughs>